Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're going to talk about something that you can have, you can keep, or you can break. It can be an act, it can be a leap, it can be bad, it can be good, but if it's strong enough, truly strong enough, it just might be able to move mountains. We're talking about faith. And we're not just talking about faith of the religious variety. In fact, in a Gallup poll last year, just 30% of D.C. residents described themselves as very religious. That compares with 58% in Mississippi, the most religious state in the nation, according to the pollsters. So today we'll bring you a show about faith of all sorts. We'll meet a minister who's trying to keep his faith after his church burned to the ground. People say the church is the people, and that is true. Uh, but the people gather in the building, and so uh, that's one of the things that we sort of are missing. We'll talk with a prison inmate who's learning to develop new faith in himself and his future. You wake up and you see this drab paint, these metal bunks, and oh my goodness, what in the world happened? We'll also check out a play by a playwright slash priest that's all about finding faith through family relationships. The message of the play is that every hundred years, every family should look back at their family story and write that down. And that's how we find God. That's how we add our own book to the Bible. But first, what happens when a tea-loving British minister walks into a medium-security prison? Kind of sounds like the setup to an old joke, right? But it's not. It's what actually happened to professional storyteller and ordained minister Geraldine Buckley. And Sister Geraldine, as the inmates called her, didn't just walk into that medium security prison in Hagerstown. She walked in to teach poetry. There are some nights that change everything. I had one of those on November the 11th, 2004. That was the first time I went to prison. This is the opening of Buckley's story, The Night That Everything Changed. You can hear it on her 2010 CD, Destination Slammer, True Tales of Life and Laughter. She's talking about her first time volunteering to lead a creative workshop at the Maryland Correctional Training Center, or MCTC, where, just a few years later, she would become the chaplain. I'd gone in and prayed for the last chaplain on his last day. It was a surprise party. I had no idea I was going to be the chaplain at this point. And I just prayed that God would protect the church and that only the chaplain God wanted to come in would come in. And as I prayed, I knew how difficult it would be. And so I thought, the poor next chaplain, I really prayed for the next chaplain. I had no idea it was going to be me and I was going to need every one of those prayers. Buckley is ordained with Faith Christian Fellowship. Which is strong on the words, strong in the moving of the Holy Spirit. But she says she began telling stories long before she found religion. I've always been passionate about creativity. I've done creative stuff since I was knee-high. And that creative stuff includes radio DJing, reading the TV news, ghostwriting books, and doing food reviews. And once Buckley found religion, she started infusing it into her creative work, sometimes in the unlikeliest of places. I know I'm a very unlikely slam poet, but I was the 1997 London Farrago slam champion. I did In Your Face Jesus poems and won these really secular competitions in the sleaziest places, because when it first started, it was pretty underground. But if you're going to do seriously In Your Face Jesus poems in sleazy places, wonderful for learning how to develop audience skills. (laughs) And Buckley suspected she'd need all the audience skills she could muster when she led that first poetry workshop at MCTC. Here she is again telling her story, the night that everything changed. Well, I hyperventilated all the way 
into the chapel and the men were already there. Well, they weren't men, they were giants. I know that every single one of them was glaring at me. I know that every single one of them was rippling their enormous muscles at me. I know that every single one of them was covered from head to toe in full body tattoos. I just know it. But the thing is, really, she didn't know it. Or yeah, even if some of the guys were seriously inked up, they weren't glaring, they weren't rippling. Or okay, if they were, it didn't last long. Because by the end of that workshop, Buckley says, every single one of them was sharing his feelings, his thoughts, his words. And it wasn't long before Buckley returned to lead more workshops, again and again and again. Creativity is powerful, and we all need it. I mean, when I see how those men responded, I mean, I'd get them to write sonnets. I mean, and just for fun, we'd go through all these poetry forms, and they were brilliant. And not just brilliant, Buckley says, but potentially more peaceful. There are enormous surveys that show if prisoners do creativity, there is an enormous decline in prison violence. And while violence is going down, things like confidence, she says, are going up. If people are going to get out, it strengthens their spirit, enables them to be able to get jobs, and hugely reduce recidivism rate. Buckley led her workshops for several years. Sometimes the men would write, sometimes they'd sing or dance. One time they even put on a full-fledged musical production called From Darkness to Light. It's not like doing a production anywhere else. You have dress rehearsals and you have tech rehearsals. You can't have anything like that in a prison. So we did this whole thing on prayer power. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, if you don't come through. (laughs) Now, again, this was all before Buckley was named prison chaplain. Once that happened, she had to juggle a bunch of other duties, like leading prayer, acting as grief counselor. But she did her best to keep the creativity flowing behind those bars I saw who these men were. I know they were inmates. I know they were all in there because most of them had done something really awful. I didn't want to know what it was, but I call forth their potential. And they, she says, responded. Many went on to become leaders in the prison church. One guy decided to get his master's degree. And all of them, she says, all of them found a new chance to express themselves, who they really were and who they really wanted to be. All I was doing was just encouraging and it's taking pain out so healing can come in. And if you get all the noise out, you suddenly realize I have potential even if I'm behind the bars. Buckley left her position as prison chaplain in January 2010. Since then, she's continued telling stories at festivals and events and she's continued spreading that healing power of creativity. I went into an alternative school for children who are one step away from being in prison, teaching them to tell stories. And so I'm starting to look at at doing more of that. In the meantime, Geraldine Buckley leaves next month for a storytelling festival in New Zealand. Then she's off to Fredonia, New York, to perform her brand new show, Tea in the Slammer, for the Criminal Justice Department at the State University of New York. After that, she'll be back in D.C., performing her show at the Capitol Fringe Festival. And the show, by the way, ends with a poem Buckley wrote right after leading that first poetry workshop at the Maryland Correctional Training Center. It's called Do Not Think. And it begins, Do not think I have forgotten you, though you dwell in this desolate place, though cold and gloom encircle you, and despair has pushed out grace. The The plans plans I have for you hold true, though all around is changed. Though your hopes and dreams are smashed, destroyed, your future rearranged. For there is destiny upon your life. I have not changed my mind. Your name is scribed upon my palm, you will not be left behind. My training grounds are mine to choose. This one's austere, 
no light. But from this stark, dank valley, you'll arise to fight my fight. I have called you to the nations. My plans are still in place. This darkness will turn into dawn. Let me hold you. Seek my face. For more on Geraldine Buckley and to find links to her blog, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And by the way, this story came to us through WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. When it comes to the guy we'll meet next, I gotta say, his day-to-day life would probably feel pretty familiar to Geraldine Buckley. That's because Michael Jones is in prison, serving a 15-year sentence for burglary and robbery. But Jones isn't your average inmate. He grew up in the middle-class suburbs of Westminster, Maryland. He went to church, and he never had to scrounge for money or a meal. I was on top of the world before I came to prison. I've never gone to bed hungry. I've never gone to bed dirty. I was very blessed, very fortunate. Fast forward to today, and as Robbie Feinberg tells us, Jones is starting to feel blessed again for the first time in ages. At 18, Michael Jones thought his future was bright. He was heading off to a Division I college, he had a wrestling scholarship, and he had his family's support. But once Jones arrived at school, things fell apart. He got involved in drugs, and he started selling them to make some money. And then he started using. Before long, Jones was robbing people committing burglaries. And by the age of 26, he ended up in prison. When you're going through it, you're really just going through the motions. You know, it really doesn't impact you one way or another. But then after a period of time, you you wake up and you see these cylinder walls and this, this drab paint, these metal bunks, and oh my goodness, what in the world happened? Jones says he didn't know the answer to that question. So we took a look at his life and he asked himself, how did I end up here? Where am I going? All of that has led him here, to Second Chances Farm in Sykesville, Maryland, about 30 miles west of Baltimore. Jones arrived at Second Chances about two months ago with four other inmates. They work here seven days a week, taking care of the four retired racehorses on the farm. The inmates will spend six months here learning the ins and outs of horse grooming as a way to develop new skills before leaving prison. Connie Swenson is the program coordinator for Second Chances, and she says grooming isn't easy for the inmates. You can't just walk up to a horse and start brushing it. You've got to work with the horse and get to know it. They learn how to open themselves up and find the most patient part of themselves, the most compassionate part of themselves. The animal has to learn to respect them, and that takes time, and that takes a certain way for people to act. Second Chances was launched in 2009 as a joint program of the Maryland Department of Public Safety and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. The program isn't just here for the inmates, though. Swenson says that without Second Chances, these horses may not be around either. These are not your Kentucky Derby high-level horses. So what happens to these horses is they're very vulnerable because once they can't make any money anymore, they've lost all their, their value for their owners. Swenson says that without any racing value... These horses are normally sold and sent to Mexico, where they're killed for their meat. But, she says, Second Chances gives these horses a new purpose, as teachers. Huh? That's how you be a superstar. Out on the farm, 
Michael Jones is relaxed with a wide grin across his face. He softly pats his horse, a thoroughbred named Greek ruler, and feeds him a few blades of grass. Jones is gentle with him, carefully lifting up each hoof. Just make sure he's shining like a diamond. He misses that attention, that limelight. He's a thoroughbred. He's a racer. Jones says that he sees a little bit of himself in his horse. They're both stubborn, a little childish, stuck in their ways. But Jones says that once they both got a little guidance, they've learned and changed. When I first started grooming him and picking his hooves, he wasn't having none of that. Well, I'm his handler. I'm his groomer. Why, why is he giving me the hard way to go? And that's when Miss Swenson, you know, put me down with that, you know, you have to earn their trust. And like the day, actually, today was the first day that from beginning to end of grooming him, it was no hiccups, no hook, hiccups, none. Jones has changed, too. He says that in the past, he'd only think about himself and his problems. He blamed the world for where he'd ended up. But out here, Jones has a thousand-pound animal to take care of. He can't goof off or blame anyone else. He's got to focus on the job at hand. Those things that I'd be contemplating and dwelling on, and, you know, I come out here, they're out the window. I mean, because right now, this horse has this particular injury, this, this attention needs to be given to this horse, and it raises my awareness, and it prevents me from making that, that lack of judgment, that lack of uh, thinking at that crucial moment. <laughs> that awareness is something Jones wants to take into the future. When he gets out of prison, Jones says he wants to travel, maybe drive a truck, and he wants to try out a second career in relaxation therapy. Those types of plans, they're new for him. And he knows that without second chances, he probably wouldn't even be thinking about them. I would either be dead or be locked up for an extremely long amount of time if it wasn't for this program. I wish I didn't have to learn it this way. I, I Believe me, I really wish I didn't have to learn it this way. But I'm also um, I'm smart enough to know that I wouldn't have learned it any other way. What may be the toughest challenge students like Jones face is making sure they don't end up back in prison once they've left. More than 40% of Maryland inmates are back in prison within three years. But the second chances graduates may have a better shot. 11 inmates have graduated from the program since 2009, and none have ended up back behind bars. But Jones still has a long way to go. First, he needs to keep coming out here for the next few months to care for these horses. And then he needs to take the grooming certification test and pass it. And then there's his parole hearing in about six months, where he hopes to finally get released from prison and begin a new life. I'm Robbie Feinberg. You can see photos of Jones and his horse and learn more about Second Chances on our website, metroconnection.org. for a break, but when we get back, starting a new church from scratch. I kind of felt a little bit awkward as, you know, the white kid going into this neighborhood to say, here I am, I've got a, I've got a new church for you. Plus the fight over a Muslim group's potential move to rural Maryland. The idea of having a really huge community being built out here didn't seem to fit in with the landscape. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, 
in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, our theme is faith. And in just a bit, we're going to hear from a Virginia minister whose church sanctuary burned to the ground in January and find out how the rebuilding process is renewing his faith. But to kick off this part of the show, we're going to meet a D.C. pastor who's trying to build a new church from the ground up. His name is Kevin Lum, and shortly after turning 30, he knew he was ready to lead a congregation. The only question was, where? One of my beliefs is is that God not only calls you to a vocation, um, but God also calls you to a place. So, as Emily Berman tells us, Kevin and his wife Charla set out on a road trip to find the place where their church should be. When the road trip started out, Kevin says, they had no idea where they'd end up. You know, we start out in Denver, Colorado, and I think we hit Fort Collins, and, and then begin to drive down south and went New Santa Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, yeah. Nevada, Utah. Utah. <laughs> and I particularly was really uh, praying that California would be where God called us, maybe San Diego or someplace warm all year long. Every night, they'd arrive in a new city, find a restaurant for dinner, walk around, and wait for some sort of sign that this was where God wanted them to be. We like to joke we were basically giving God some suggestions of places we might like to go. <laughs> they were on the road for a month and still no sign. Then they got back home to Washington. It was unanimous. We looked at each other and said, no, like we're supposed to stay in D.C. And that's how the church started. If we were going to stay, we had to take responsibility to make D.C. the place that we wanted it to be. Uh, this is your first time here. You should know it's only our second time here. Now, just one year later, Kevin is the pastor of his own congregation called the Table Church. Members meet on H Street Northeast, right near the Lums' apartment. It's called the Table, Kevin explains, because of the bond that forms over shared meals, an idea that comes up again and again in the Bible. Services are held inside a more established church, Douglas Memorial United Methodist, a year ago, Kevin says he had no clue how he'd go about starting a church in a historically African-American neighborhood. I kind of felt a little bit awkward as, you know, the white kid going into this neighborhood to say, here I am, I've got a, I've got a new church for you. He sent emails to pastors in the area, not expecting anyone to write back. But by the end of the evening, Douglas's reverend, Dr. Helen Fleming, wrote back. And we probably met an hour, an hour and a half. We prayed together and it was this great meeting. But she ends by saying, well, why don't you come partner with us? We've got lots of space. You could hold your services in our church. And one of the, the beauties of it is it gives us a rootedness in the community. The next step was attracting church members. The Lums threw parties, brunches, dinners, and talked with their friends and friends of friends about a vision for a new church. It would be a church devoted to helping everyone in their neighborhood, connecting over meals and meeting not just on Sundays, but throughout the week at gatherings like this. Ten people in a basement apartment in Bloomingdale, sipping hot tea from mismatched mugs, talking about how to grow and distribute food in a Christian way. The group is making plans for a produce market where both church members and neighbors can buy fruits and vegetables on a sliding scale. Approaching this issue as a faith community, Charla says, bonds people together for the cause. Faith communities can speak into the myth that 
I'm a completely separate entity from everything going on around me. The call uh, we hear from Jesus is that change, true change, only happens in the context of community. The Table Church is now pulling in about 60 people to services on Sunday evenings. The crowd is a lot of young professionals, but also some members of the host church, Douglas, and some children as well. Probably three-fourths found out about it through some sort of social media. Yeah, I saw one of my friends liked your Facebook page, and I thought, well, I trust them, so I'll come check it out. Corey Self is a member and says finding a group of people committed to staying in D.C. has changed the way he practices his faith. There are so many negative things that go along with church and church being this institution that that oppresses and, and manipulates, but being a group of people who want to love each other because we're called to love each other with no exceptions. And after only a month of gatherings, Kevin says that's just about the best response he could have wished for. I'm Emily Berman. We turn now from a faith group that's just getting started to one that would like to expand. The Dar es Salaam Muslim community was founded in Silver Spring in 1995. Since then, it's moved to College Park, and its school for pre-K through 12th graders has grown from some two dozen students to nearly 650. Now the leaders of Dar es Salaam would like to move again so they can grow and expand the services they offer their members. But as Tara Boyle tells us, some residents near Dar es Salaam's proposed new home are fighting those plans. It's the last Friday before spring break, and teachers at the Al-Huda school are scrambling to wrap up lessons before saying goodbye to their students for a week. Okay, and we have five pennies equaling two? Five. Nickel! Ten pennies equals two? Dollar! Several dozen first-grade girls, dressed in blue dresses and white headscarves, stretch their hands in the air, waving for teacher Shireen Ishaq's attention. Let's see who can get this. Two dimes and one nickel. Down the hallway and around a corner, an older group of girls are in HIV class. They're memorizing the Quran and rock back and forth as they recite the words on the pages in front of them. This classroom is in use all day, every day, which is pretty much the case for every classroom in this school. We've maxed this building out. We're using every single room, every single closet. Harun Bakai is the principal of Al-Huda School. Uh, Some of the closets have been converted into office space, some, you know, some rooms which were really not classrooms. We had to convert them into classrooms. And Bakai says the space crunch doesn't just affect students. Their parents and other adults in the Dar es Salaam community have no room at the Al-Huda campus for their prayer services. So they hold them several miles away in a Knights of Columbus hall. Imam Safi Khan leads those services. Are you going to be mesmerized by this world, by its glitter and glamour, such that you forget the real purpose of life? Or are you going to 
use this world for what you need it for, to strengthen your devotion to Allah and to enrich your hereafter. Members of Dar es Salaam would like to be able to house all their programs, Friday prayers, their school, and their newspaper, among others, in a single location, one that will allow their community to grow and thrive. And they think they've found the perfect spot. It's about 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, and I'm here in front of the site of the former Woodmont Academy, a Catholic school here in Howard County. The Woodmont Academy in Cooksville, Maryland, closed in 2011, and now the site is shuttered with a chain-link fence blocking off the school's driveway. So we're surrounded by what is really a rural landscape with horse farms, um, fences, um, open spaces as far as you can see. Sean Hightower has lived a few miles from the Woodmont Academy since 2005. I was just really attracted to the idea of my kids going to school and being able to see cows right in, you know, from their classroom. But last fall, she heard about Dara Salam's plans to move here and redevelop the Woodmont site. And she says she started to worry about the future of this rural enclave 30 miles west of Baltimore. The idea of having what looked like a, a really huge community being built out here didn't seem to fit in with the landscape. So Hightower and other residents formed a formal coalition, Residents for the Responsible Development of Woodmont, or RRDW. They created a website and started voicing their concerns to local officials. Paul Scalney is an attorney working with the group. The RRDW is comprised of over 500 people. Um, we represent somewhere in the tune of, I think, 12 or 13 different homeowners associations. Their big concern, he says, has to do with zoning. Allowing a new large-scale development at this site, they worry, might open the floodgates to other big developments in some of the last large tracts of open space in Howard County. So what the petitioner has asked for here is a change of zone from RC to an institutional overlay. The zoning lingo here gets wonky pretty quickly, but Sean Hightower says what this whole dispute boils down to is development. Our issues as it relates to the purchase has nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that this is a Muslim community, nor does it have anything to do with the religion um, as a whole. Our issue is land use. Paul Scalney says RRDW would be fine with Dara Salam's move to Cooksville if it'll agree to use the land according to the more conservative zoning rules that applied to Woodmont Academy. This is really about setting a precedent in the western part of this community and allowing a zone to take to, to, to become prevalent in a location where it really doesn't belong. Back in College Park, it's lunchtime at Al Huda School. Hundreds of girls are eating pizza at long tables in the cafeteria. Minhaj Hassan is a board member of Dar es Salaam. He says he and other members of his community are still hoping Howard County officials will grant their zoning request. But he also says preliminary concerns about the size of their plan, including a proposed mosque that could hold thousands of people, have been overblown. If we, you know, can have a site that could accommodate unlimited growth, of course, why wouldn't anyone have that? But we recognize the reality, the reality of our growth. It's it's not going towards 5,000. I mean, there's no... Islamic Center in the country, I think, that gets 5,000 congregants. And Hassan wants residents in Cooksville to know that if the sale of the Woodmont Academy goes through, Dar es Salaam will work hard to be a good neighbor and build strong ties to the local community. Dar es Salaam means the abode of peace or the home of peace. So that's what we want. Uh, we want. We want people to know us not from our pamphlets and our marketing material or our website, but we want people to know us when they interact with us.
He'll find out soon whether that interaction is in the cards. Howard County planning officials will make a recommendation on the zoning of the Woodmont site to members of the county council in the coming weeks. And the council is expected to vote on the matter by this summer. I'm Tara Boyle. You can see photos of Dara Salam's current and potential future homes on our website, metroconnection.org. So while we're talking about having a place to worship, that very thing has been on the mind of Carl Perez a whole lot lately. Pulpit used to be right here, a chair there. My chair was right there, and uh, the choir was behind me, and the uh, uh, keyboard was there. Perez is the minister of Adams United Methodist Church in the small town of Whitesville on the eastern shore of Virginia. His church's sanctuary burned to the ground back in January. Stained glass windows, furniture, church records, all of them were lost in the blaze. Interestingly enough, the fire happened in a region that's seen a lot of arson in recent months. But this particular fire was not an arson. In any case, Brian Russo visited the site and talked with Perez about how he and his congregation are keeping the faith after losing a precious piece of their history. I thought, well, it must be something smaller, maybe just a mistake. By the time I got the road, I could just see smoke, and I thought, okay, just smoke damage. We can handle that. And then when I got to the uh, front part of the steps and just saw the flames just come right out and shoot through the roof, it was just just one of those weird feelings of just despair. How long did the fire go on and rage through the night? Well, they did about three, well, they, they did about three hours. I think the first hour they were trying the best that they could. They ran out of water. They went back and got more tanks of water. So there was tankers from five fire stations here going back and forth. By the end of the time it was over, we had five feet of water stuck in the basement, and it was still blazing. So, I know this church has, has been here for more than 100 years in this community. You know, I'm looking and I'm seeing, you know, charred pews and just the old stained glass uh, covered in ash and soot. Tell me about just some of the historical and and valuable things to this congregation that was lost in this fire? Well, I I think the the stained glasses are, they are old, they're original, 1925. Uh, That was a big hit. Uh, They were donated, of course, from family members. Some of the family members are still around. Uh, The pews, uh, you can still see some of the little uh, uh, brass uh, markers on those. Mm -hmm. They're given in honor of. The pulpit uh, furniture is the original uh, pulpit furniture from when they got it in 1925. And so uh, that's been very uh, hard for us to look at, uh, especially when the seats are burned and uh, the uh, altars charred and things like that. Uh, that has been kind of hard for us to, to look at. There are some things that we found that were buried. Uh, so we were able to uh, give some of those mementos back to the families that donated them. Looking around now, I mean, there's obviously the gaping hole that is on the right side towards the road here. What was off to the left here um, that is now just charred boards? The Off to the left was a, was a uh, we called it a Sunday school room. Uh, but we had used it for a, um, 
it was overflow. We had big funerals, uh, so we would overflow. These two windows here that are off on the left-hand side, they, they would open up, and you would be able to sit uh, 20 to 30 people in there. We'd pack them in like sardines, of course. When you fit them in there, they would be able to hear the service and be a part of the congregation and then so that became a room where it was just decorated and people would go in there and sit and talk and have refreshments and things like that and you know we just walked around the the building and there's a gigantic gaping hole almost looks like a plane flew into it um talk about just your feelings now months later uh standing here i think it still hurts i think uh when you've been in the place that you used to go into for three years every single sunday at nine o'clock you you get to this site and you just revisit the memories, the fun times, uh, Easter's, Thanksgiving's, Christmas times. You know, and then you look at what you see here and it sort of just creates just like something's missing. Someone's missing. And that someone is the building. Uh, people say the church is the people. And that is true. Uh, but the people gather in the building. And so uh, that's one of the things that we sort of are missing. That was Reverend Carl Perez of Adams United Methodist Church in Whitesville, Virginia, speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. You can see a photo of Reverend Perez in his damaged sanctuary on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, taking a leap of faith as a family. All I know is that she was from uh, the Congo coming out of Morocco in a refugee camp, and that's all I knew. Plus, going behind the scenes of a play penned by a Tony Award winner and Jesuit priest. That's what he's trying to point out, is that don't look at the Bible for the message of what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. Look at it from the standpoint of the families in the Bible. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking about faith, acts of faith, leaps of faith, and in this next story, what it takes to have and keep faith in the people who are closest to you. People said there would be things I would regret not asking her. There is one thing I regret not telling her. I wish at that moment, the moment you said everything was all right and you weren't going to get better, I wish I had said I was proud of you. We're at a rehearsal for How to Write a New Book for the Bible, a play making its East Coast premiere at Maryland's Roundhouse Theater this month. This year is the show's narrator, a Jesuit priest named Bill Kane, who returns to his ailing mother's home to care for her. You're smiling and you dream. What were you dreaming about? Willie Mays. I've been dreaming about Willie Mays. I was at Shea Stadium, and I was watching Willie make this amazing catch. Say hey, Willie! The play jumps around in time a lot, portraying the mother, Mary, when she's 60, 40, 80. And as director Ryan Roulette points out, the play also tells a true story, that of playwright Bill Kane, who's also, yes, a Jesuit priest. Jesuits believe that you find God in everything. And one of the things he says in the play that's really fascinating is that priests and writers do the same thing. They point things out. They notice things. They say, look at that thing over there. That's the thing that is different, and thus that's the thing that is special. That's the thing that God cares about. 
But for all this talk of God, Roulette makes clear that how to write a new book for the Bible isn't what you think of as a religious play. I mean, you're not going to see the Garden of Eden or Moses parting the Red Sea. And you're not going to hear a lengthy treatise on the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule. As Bill says in the play, people tend to think about the Bible as a rule book for morality. And that's not what it is. What he says in the play is the Bible is a family story. And the message of the play is that every hundred years, every family should look back at their family story and write that down. And that's how we find God. That's how we add our own book to the Bible. And mind you, Roulette says, not all those stories are going to be pleasant. Take this scene where Bill comes back to Mary's house and discovers that, in her worsening state, she's inadvertently soiled the living room. Billy! There was one last stupendous outburst of rage. Billy, I'm out here! I've been out running errands and avoiding coming home. I'm in the kitchen. Look, Billy! Gloria came and did my hair. Doesn't it look nice? I think she's going to the bathroom, Bob. Well, I don't have I to. I think Billy. you should try. Billy, what's wrong? Well, the living room. It's soiled. What's The couch, soiled? the rug. Don't look, Bob. I'll take care of it. I'll clean it up. You should just go into the bathroom, okay? Okay. You're talking about where do you find God? And sometimes you find God and not the beautiful things, but some of the most difficult things. Mary Beth Wise plays Mary Kane. So when Mary and Bill fight each other, that kind of conflict can be revelatory. So it's the line, what is the line about families are a cauldron? No, a family is a crucible. It's it's a crucible to turn passion into love. That's Ray Ficka. He plays the character of Bill Kane. And he says one of his favorite things about how to write a new book for the Bible goes back to what director Ryan Roulette said before about how playwright Bill Kane defines God. As opposed to... Some Charlton Heston bearded presence in the sky with stone tablets. Kane portrays God as more of... A spiritual presence in all of us, in humanity, in existence. Ficka points to this one moment in the play where Bill's father looks at his son and smiles. And the Bill character says, you know, I'm always searching for God and what is God. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm not giving you the lines. But then my father looks at me with such loving eyes. I can't define what it is. I can't put a name on it. But I think that is God. So what the playwright does, Ficka says, is he takes religion out of the institution, if you will. And puts it into almost a a humanism Mm -hmm. thing. A humanism thing, says Ryan Roulette, that makes your own personal religion, whatever it may be, kind of a moot point. You know, whether you are a spiritual person or not, whether you are Jewish, Christian, Muslim, it doesn't really matter. The message of the play is to take a really good long look at your family and your relationships with each other. And that's where you find uh, – what is the word I'm looking for for this? That's where you really find the ineffable. You know, That's where you find uh, uh, infinity. How to Write a New Book for the Bible runs at Roundhouse Theater in Bethesda from April 10th through May 5th. To see photos of the cast and to read more about playwright Bill Kane, who, by the way, is a writer on the Washington-inspired TV series House of Cards, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
Faith and relationships and the meaning of family are also at the heart of our next story. Becoming a foster parent and welcoming a child you barely know into your family can be a big, big leap of faith. But some foster parents make an even greater leap, taking in traumatized children who are refugees from war-torn regions. There are currently about 700 refugee foster kids across the United States. Many have come from camps for displaced people, have been scooped up by aid organizations, and then placed in the U.S. foster system. These children are living with families in cities from Phoenix, Arizona to Fargo, North Dakota. They're also right here in Washington, D.C. Jacob Fenston brings us the story of one young woman who's still getting accustomed to life in the nation's capital. She landed here about a year ago. My name is Caroline. I'm 19, 19 years old. Caroline, who doesn't want to use her full name, is still learning English. Right now, she's still more comfortable speaking French. She came from far away, she says, from the Congo. She left there at age 12 because of the ongoing war, one of the deadliest conflicts in the world in recent years. She spent two years traveling across Africa, Cameroon, Niger, Burkina Faso, finally arriving in Morocco, more than halfway across the continent of Africa. It's a long story, she says, and when I ask her about that period, she clenches her hands and presses on her forehead. She doesn't want to think about those two years or talk about them. In Morocco, she lived in a refugee camp for three years. It was a nightmare for her, but when she found out she was coming to the United States, she was worried. The people in the refugee camp had become her support system. They were like family, she says, and she did not want to leave them. My name is Elaine Farley. I'm a foster parent with Lutheran Social Services. Last year, Lutheran Social Services called up Farley and said they were looking for a home for a young woman, a refugee. The foster child doesn't know anything about the foster mom, and the mom doesn't know anything about the foster child, no more than what the social worker tells you or either what the child tells you. Um... All I know is that she was from uh, the Congo, coming out of Morocco, in a refugee camp, and that's all I knew. Farley's been a foster parent since 1994. She has one daughter by birth, and she's had 12 foster children over the years. But Farley says at first she wasn't sure it would work to have someone from such a different background. When they told me about Caroline, I said, well, can I meet her? I guess we kind of like jail, I guess you might say. We talked, and she liked me, and I liked her. I said, okay, this might work. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. And there is a communication problem, but we're working it out. Um, She tells me sometimes when she understands me, she says, you know, and and then when I don't understand, then I call the social worker. She talks for me. And she talks for her, too. (laughs) Rachel. My name is Rachel Pierre. I am the program manager for the unaccompanied refugee minors at Lutheran Social Services. There are currently seven kids in the program in D.C. Most are from Africa. We've had children who've been trafficked. We have children who are dealing with emotional trauma, past sexual abuse, past physical abuse. And we have children who've experienced all of the above. That trauma can make it difficult for kids to trust anyone, even someone who's trying to help. Oftentimes, unfortunately, we do have some placement disruption because it becomes very difficult for the foster parent to continue to try to support and nurture a child who's really pushing them away or who appears to be pushing them away. Caroline says when she first got to the United States, 
She was afraid of meeting people she didn't know. C'est que je pensais que peut-être les gens vont vont me faire. Afraid people would hurt her, like people hurt her in the past. C'est resté dans ma mémoire. Whatever went on, if you notice when she talks about it, she comes very tearful. So I don't. I don't go that way unless she wants to go that way. Now, if she talks to me about it, fine, but she has not got to the point that she talks about what happened over into the Congo. So Elaine Farley says she tries to stay focused on the present. Here, here now in the United States. And Caroline is doing well. Her English is getting better. She's figured out the metro system. And she's got dreams for the future. By six months, I can finish my, my GED classes. When I finish, I'll go to college. She wants to be a doctor or a nurse because, she says, so many people have helped her. Now she wants to help others. I'm Jacob Fenston. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Brandywine, Maryland, and the Capitol View neighborhood of Southeast D.C. I'm Joyce Dowling, and I'm 59 years old and live in Brandywine, Maryland. Brandywine is about 18 miles southeast of Capitol Hill, between the suburban neighborhoods and rural countryside between Clinton and Waldorf in Prince George's County. Brandywine was the railroad village, so it was the site of the first major store in the area of the county. Most of the Brandywine area contained farms, many of which were tobacco farms. The old tobacco barns are already starting to become rare historic sites. Now, there are people of all walks of life here. Government workers, teachers, administrators, construction, transportation, and we still have agriculture here in Brandywine. Well, I like that Brandywine is an old-fashioned type community, for the most part, where people actually know each other and work together to continue to make it a better place to live. My name is Saraya Gant, and I'm 42 years old, and I live in the neighborhood of Capitol View. My neighborhood is located in southeast Washington in Ward 7, in between the streets of East Capitol Street and Central Avenue. And it is in walking distance from Capitol Heights subway station and 15 minutes away from downtown. The neighborhood is an older um, neighborhood. Before they built the subdivision, there was public housing here on the southeast side and also on, um, across East Capitol on the northeast side. My grandmother, she's been living here for over 50 years. People stay around here usually until they pass, and then their children usually takes over their houses. Capitol View neighborhood is unique because of the long-time um, residents that you have here that has been living here that was also part of the working class back in the 60s and that are still here and with the new new people moving in the subdivision 
you have the mixture of the two. So that's what makes it unique. You have homeowners and people that have been here for decades. I grew up around here. My grandmother lives on the next street, and it has changed over the last six years. It is a family-oriented, upper-middle-class neighborhood where everyone knows each other, and we are, it's like a suburbs in the city. We heard from Soraya Gant in Capitol View and Joyce Dowling in Brandywine. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Tara Boyle, Brian Russo, and Robbie Feinberg. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Lauren Landau, Robbie Feinberg, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when we'll gear up for tax day with a show about debt. We'll learn how much college debt D.C. denizens are carting around. We'll hear how federal workers and contractors are feeling about the big S-word, sequestration, and we'll meet a Vietnam veteran who's forever indebted to a fellow soldier for putting him on a different path. I raise my rifle and I put a bullet in the chamber and Joe comes flying over, grabs the gun, and, you know, reality set in. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.